you know, in some way, no one comes to practice for the right reason. From the beginning of time, no one has come to practice for the right reason. Another line from our sutra book from Shohaku Okumura, he says, our practice is always based in some amount of self-centeredness. And yet, despite this self-centeredness, despite this fact that no one comes to practice for the right reasons, no one returns to practice for the right reasons, no one takes the precepts for the right reasons, it can somehow open up into also the right reasons. Dogen says something like, we mistake the carved dragon for the true dragon, but we can come to love the true dragon by loving the carved dragon. Josh Bartok Roshi began practicing Zen with John Daidalori at Zen Mountain Monastery in the early 1990s while a student at nearby Vassar College. In 2000, he began practicing with James Ishmael Ford Roshi. He was ordained by James Ford in 2008 and received permission to teach from him in 2012. Presently, Josh serves as the guiding teacher and spiritual director of the Greater Boston Zen Center. For many years, he worked as a senior editor at Wisdom Publications, the leading publisher of classic and contemporary Buddhist books from all of the major Buddhist lineages. During his tenure, he edited nearly 250 books having to do with meditation, mindfulness, and Buddhist traditions. Josh is the co-author of Saying Yes to Life, Even the Hard Parts, and the author of Daily Doses of Wisdom. His writings have appeared in Buddha Dharma, Lion's Roar, and the Handbook of Zen, Mindfulness, and Behavioral Health. He remains with Wisdom on a part-time basis as the executive editor and has a private practice in contemplative and Buddhist pastoral therapy in Cambridge, Massachusetts. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice, as well as your life off of the cushion. I'm your host, Ian Whitemar. This podcast is sponsored by the Providence Zen Center, a residential Buddhist community in Cumberland, Rhode Island. The Providence Zen Center provides opportunities for short and long-term residency and holds retreats from one day to three months. For more information, please visit ProvidenceZen.org. So Josh, I think I'm going to begin in a little bit of a different place because this is a unique morning. We're actually in your Sangha, in your Zen Center, the Greater Boston Zen Center in Cambridge. And what's coming up for me, right, is here we are just in this moment, which on one level feels very imperfect. I was late this morning. We had trouble with the call last time. And there's this tendency of mine to be like, wow, things aren't right, which sort of helps me go back into the, yeah, well, this moment is just what this moment is. And I don't know if there's anything that's coming up for you in that situation or where we are. Sure. Well, that's one of the uh, real fruits of uh, Dharma practice. This is a practice of uh, 
come as you are. This is a practice that receives us exactly as we are. And in, and in, uh, as we practice that, we're developing our own heart's capacity to meet life as it in fact is, uh, to meet it uh, with the big mess of self, with the big mess of preferences and aversions still arising but not being the problems or requirements that they tell us they are. Uh, and uh, in meditation, part of what we're practicing is, our, uh, is entrusting ourselves to thusness, entrusting ourselves to uh, this one thing that is self and universe as it is, moment after moment. And we practice in a formal setting. We practice in the zendo because that's actually the easiest form of that practice. When we have special cushions, special spaces, uh, a community gathered around us who are also trying to do this thing. And we practice when it's easy so that we can bring that skill into action when it's hard. Whether it's, uh, whether it's traffic, whether it's a uh, podcast interview not going in the ways that we wished or the ways that we expected, or whether it's major things like the matter of life and death, our own uh, life and death, perhaps a cancer diagnosis, the life and death of others, uh, our, our loved ones, we then uh, are able to meet even those difficult situations as they are without interpreting them without regarding them as a defect of the universe. So how did you get going on this path, you know, that brought you to this moment? Uh, well, there are kind of a number of uh, streams that led me to it. Uh, one of which, you know, even before I knew the word Dharma, before I had encountered Buddhism in, in any form, uh, as a kid, uh, I had uh, Crohn's disease, which in the, uh, and I, I still have it, uh, er, early on as they were trying to figure out how to diagnose and treat it, uh, it's a very painful condition, you know, and it comes in kind of flare-ups. And within those flare-ups, there are periods of intense waves of pain. Uh, and, and so as a child, I actually had a lot of practice uh, being with uh great pain it was the huge gut pain that would swell up and uh there is nothing that i could do that in that moment would help and i somehow kind of intuitively instinctually recognized that the thing that i needed to do the thing that i could control was uh not separating from that pain i couldn't uh couldn't stop the arising of that pain but i could uh I could put all of my effort into not resisting it. Uh, and, you know, in, in high school, for instance, when, when, when my girlfriend would see me in, in a, 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 this happening for me, she would have an impulse to comfort me or to pet on my hand or hair or, or say, uh, are you okay? And, and I, I needed to say, so when you recognize that that's happening for me, the thing that I need you to do is nothing. Just let me be there with that. And this is, you know, this is also a, a thing that I saw as a younger child in, uh, 
every time I would stub my toe on this one particular chair in the living room, it, there's this particular uh, toe catching kind of part of the base, and I would stub my toe, and I would instantly see this uh, flare up of physical sensation of pain, and uh, and, and somehow for whatever reason I. I was immediately able to grasp that the thing that I needed to do in that moment was not amplify it by getting angry at it and just be with the neutral physical sensation. Uh, and, uh, you know, one way this sometimes uh, gets uh, expressed is that suffering equals uh, pain multiplied by resistance. And uh, and in this way, also, uh, we we there's the the Buddhist truism that pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. Pain is included in what it's like to be a human being, and how we encounter that pain, how we meet it, uh, is the thing that's in our control, and that's the place we can work to diminish suffering. And so this is the place that I kind of uh, one part of the way where I encountered. Uh, you know, where I for myself discovered these truths. And then when I discovered Buddhism uh, by reading Hermann Hesse's uh, Siddhartha uh, and actually reading uh, the novel Shogun as well, uh, you know, then there were things in it that seemed familiar, that seemed right, that seemed to resonate directly with my experience. When I was, and then in response to those books, I took a course of Buddhism in Vassar College uh, and as part of that course, we went on a field trip to Zen Mountain Monastery. Uh, and then over the, the remainder of my college career, I, I spent one summer at Zen Mountain Monastery. I went up on weekends a number of times. And then when I graduated, I uh, lived there as a monastic resident for a year and a half. And so just because I know a little bit about you, um, I know that at, during college, you, you studied cognitive science, followed the Zen path. and. Later, you became a, uh, a therapist. And so there's this real draw. There's kind of a pattern here of like, what is this mind I, I imagine? Mm. Being? And you know, each of those seems very distinct, right? Cognitive science, which I don't know a ton about, but uh, maybe sort of applying a, sign, a scientific perspective to what is this mind or what is this thing? And then Buddhism, this sort of faith path, and then psychology as this uh, also a science, but deeply emotional. I'm just curious about what is the question that just keeps you drawn to like, what is this mind? What is this? Because you've given your whole life to it, it looks like. In so many Dharma talks would say some version of the essential question of Zen, the reason, uh, the reason we practice, what the whole thing about is to answer the question of who am I? And, and this was uh, never my question. And uh, I would uh, regularly think, am I in the wrong place? <laughs> uh, but for me, the, the question, my question is uh, why does it hurt so much to be me? Mm -hmm. uh, my question was, uh, you know, arose from this place that, like, from the beginning, I, I, 
I I kind of had a sense that uh, life should feel more manageable than it does for me. Uh, I had a sense, uh, you know, and this kind of crystallized for me one one moment in uh, uh, in college. This was a time when I had uh, I had had. Uh, a major car accident. I had a brain injury that was uh, affecting my cognition and my memory. I was depressed. I was existentially overwhelmed. Uh, and I was just in such a big melting mess of, uh, of awfulness. Uh, and I remember uh, looking out over this lake in Vassar, uh, Sunset Lake, and there was a duck out there. And I realized that this duck was just being a duck. And I had a sense of how, or, or an imaginal sense of how easy, natural, and seamless this duck's, you know, basic practice of being a duck was. How easy it was for the duck to be a duck, and how hard it was for me to be me. And, uh, and I feel so lucky that I had enough exposure to Zen at that point that I had a sense of this might have something to do with how I use my mind. There's a, there's a story about a, uh, <laughs> a gambler uh, who goes to uh, a card game every Saturday and each time uh, he loses money and each time he sees the uh, dealer cheating. <laughs> and, uh, and his friend says, uh, what you keep, uh, Losing, uh, but, and he's cheating. What's, what's up with that? And he says, well, I know it's a crooked game, but it's the only game in town. <laughs> and uh, for me, Dharma practice is like that too. It's, uh, you know, and I imagine there's a kind of uh, invisible neon sign over, over the Zendo that says, run if you can. If you can do anything else, if there's any possible way for you to avoid the difficult work of being with your own self, you'll probably find that easier. Uh, but when that fails, the Dharma is here. Uh, and, uh, and so this is part of what keeps me coming back. Uh, the, and there's a time too when, uh, you know, ha having allayed most of the most ultra acute versions of my suffering, uh, it isn't my own suffering that brings me back. It is my, uh, what the Bodhisattva vows express as the, the vow to save uh, the numberless beings, um, you know, w which I also express as a vow of service and, and a desire to give back, to, uh, to try to pay back the karmic debt that I have incurred from all the lives that I've taken in the form of food, from all of the kindness that I've received in myriad forms, uh, material and uh, all of the teaching and support that I've received from all of my Dharma teachers. And there's no possible way I can pay that back. And so I am committed to paying it forward, to holding these spaces, maintaining these, you know, these entry places so that other people can uh, come and meet this life-sustaining, truly for me, life-saving uh, dharma. Uh, and, you know, there was a time when uh, I, the first sitting group, I, or the, the, uh, I, was, I was leading a, a, a group in, 
uh, in downtown Boston. We rented a, a room in a church one Tuesday a week. Um, you know, and at one point I said to my teacher, uh, I said, you know, uh, if I uh, didn't have to be there every Tuesday night to lead other people, I don't know if I'd practice at all. <laughs> and he said, well, then it's a good thing you have to be there every Tuesday night. Uh, and we all save each other. There's a line in our suture book from uh, Reb Anderson who says, uh, we can't do it by ourselves and nobody else can do it for us. You know, that's an interesting line in the sense that you've had teachers, you're now teaching, and as a teacher, you know the folly of nobody can do it for you. You have to do it yourself. And yet we do, we're drawn to teachers as guides, companions to sort of help us do the work. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what your relationship is, you know, with your students now and what that means really to be a teacher for people who are trying to find themselves, sometimes who get confused with the teacher's going to solve the situation for them. Mm -hmm. What's that dynamic of being a teacher for people asking either, who am I or why does it hurt so bad or, or whatever their question might yeah. be. Yeah. Uh, so part of it is, is uh, seeing the uh, impulse to fix, seeing the impulse to be the one who knows uh, seeing the impulse to kind of, uh, in a foreshortening fashion, answer those questions as opposed to saying, yes, those are the questions. You're in the right place. Do this. This is, this is a, 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 a in, in some ways, this is the foremost challenge of uh, uh, contemporary Western Zen. Uh, and find, finding the, uh, there's so many institutional problems, so many abuses of power, so many abuses of spiritual authority, you know, and, and part of the reason this happens, this, this happens so much in Zen is because Zen makes use, really skillful use of a form called doksan, the individual one-to-one uh, -one meeting, which can be very powerful. Uh, and is one of the primary teaching tools uh, of our tradition. And that tool lends itself very easily towards a uh, dangerous shadow, uh, towards a sh to, to, uh, kind of reinforcing, uh, potentially reinforcing for both student and teacher that that person over there, the teacher, is special in some way or has... Uh, uh, more of something it, uh, that you lack or, ha or ha has a, a power that you don't. And part of, part of our practice as teachers needs to be uh, cutting through and setting down our own... Uh, mm, uh, so, so I'm re I'm reading this book. I'm reading this book called uh, uh, "How Democracies Die," uh, which is an excellent book, uh, and you know for obvious reasons right now. Um, but one of one of the one of the things that it points to is a, is a quality called forbearance, and this is the practice of uh, 
of not of of politicians or parties in power not doing everything that they can do uh, just because it isn't illegal, uh, and uh, and instead kind of uh, doing less from a position of you know supporting the the system and supporting the the kind of con- continuation of of democracy if a if a politician or or a party it, it, because because it is not possible for uh any set of laws any set of ethical codes to really include every single situation uh and so there's a there's a practice uh regarding spiritual authority regarding spiritual power of forbearance uh you know, and, and there's a danger of teachers uh, buying their own press releases, believing their students' stories about their excellence, uh, and uh, you know, part of the part of the job of uh, of a spiritual teacher is to make is to put ourselves out of business, <laughs> to, yeah, yeah. to make ourselves irrelevant to our students. This is what this is related to the precept. Uh, uh, the, the 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 grave precept, one of the the top ten ways that humans cause suffering for themselves, the world, and other people, uh, of not sparing the dharma assets. For me, this precept has specifically to do with uh, with uh, guidance for dharma teachers. You know, there's an impulse uh, for us for a dharma teacher to want to hold something back, to want to keep something secret so that we can remain special. Uh, but the practice of a Dharma teacher needs to be continually, continually, continually giving it all away, not sparing the Dharma assets. So as a teacher, as a practitioner, you know, I feel drawn in a couple different directions. You know, One, we have this real crisis in our country arisen out of not knowing really who we are or maybe knowing who we are not wanting to to deal with it i want to talk about these big issues or the big things but most of the time the people who are suffering it's not about that it's not about immigrants at the border or uh, corruption at the highest levels it's it's that my mom is dying or i'm dying and uh, I feel like there are times when I get a little frustrated with Zen because it's like, oh, there's someone hungry, you feed them. There's somebody, you know, clothes, you clothe them. And I, you know, and I'm like, well, what about all the institutional problems? We have we have uh, started actually in uh, after the election of 2016 a, a racial and social justice group. Uh, uh, here at the Zen Center to uh, address some of these uh, kinds of questions, you know, or or to engage maybe some of these kinds of questions. And I want to read you a piece that's in our sutra book that we kind of developed uh, collaboratively uh, in that racial and social justice group. We call it the fourfold commitment to racial and social justice. We commit ourselves to actively engaging and fully actualizing our bodhisattva vows in the relative world. We commit ourselves to doing this fearlessly, opening our hearts to suffering and our eyes to oppression, privilege, marginalization, and injustice. 
We commit ourselves to doing this inclusively, embodying the ideals of mutuality, interdependence, and democratic process. And we commit ourselves to doing this humbly, acknowledging the reality of not knowing, even as we act in urgent service to all beings. What do you say to people who come in and say, well, I'm just here to find out who I am? You know, in some way, uh, no one comes to practice for the right reason. From the beginning of time, no one has come to practice for the right reason. Uh, another line from our sutra book from Shohaku Okumura, he says, our practice is always based in some amount of self-centeredness. And yet, despite this self-centeredness, despite this fact that no one comes to practice for the right reasons, no one returns to practice for the right reasons, no one takes the precepts for the right reasons, it can somehow open up into also the right reasons. Dogen says uh, something like, we mistake the carved dragon for the true dragon, but we can come to love the true dragon by loving the carved dragon. You know, one of the things that we do in, in the, the, the Zen Center here, you know, in part related to this piece that I just read you, it is continually widen it out and uh, remind us that uh, actually we're not separate from all of this. So if you're trying, so part of why you're suffering is not just because of your grasping and aversion and ignorance, but the uh, institutional grasping, aversion and ignorance to borrow David Lowe's language. Uh, and, uh, and we're not separate from any of this. We're not separable. And part of what the part of what we do in the easy grounding supportive space of practice is not try to feel good for our own sake, but trust, but to touch this unconditioned, unconditional okayness that then strengthens our capacity to be able to actualize our bodhisattva vows in the relative world, off the cushion. If we're not doing that, if it's just about me and how it's going for me right now and my mind and my realization and my concentration and my insight, then that's not the Dharma. And ultimately, as we dive deeply into uh, exploring the ways we create suffering ourselves, then we are more able to see uh, other people who we want to reserve as a special harm-causing class of being, we see, oh, I am like that too. There but for karma, there but for causes and conditions, but for circumstances, there go I. That, could, that is me too. And when we see this, then there is, this, is, this is the seed of compassion. And this is the seed of uh, engagement with the world. Uh, and part of, part of what our Zen practice also does, uh, you know, is enable us to be a kind of uh, pastoral, chaplain-like presence to a dying world, to a dying civilization, uh, to a uh, sick and ailing culture. The five remembrances, the Buddha's own teaching, says uh, that I am of the nature to die. There is no way to escape death. Says 
All that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature of change. There is no way to escape being separated from them. And so we are able to be a loving presence to this big mess of the world, engaging in such palliative care activities as we can, uh, but not imagining that anything about this practice stops death. Even the Buddha couldn't stop death, couldn't stop wars, couldn't stop starvation, couldn't even stop the caste system in India. Uh, and nor could Jesus or Gandhi or, or anyone else, uh, you know, eliminate the reality of the big mess that humans make. But engaging with it, doing what we can, when we can, in the amount we can, from a place of uh, non-separation, from a place of compassion, from a place of love, this is what uh, our practice offers us, and this is what we, from our place of practice, can offer the world. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Josh Bartok encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more about his teaching and retreat schedule by visiting bostonzen.org. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Providence Zen Center. If you would like to deepen your practice commitment, I encourage you to explore PZC's residential and retreat opportunities. You can find all of that information at providencezen.org. If you would like some guidance on how to meditate, there are some videos you can watch at providencezen.org videos. My name is Ian White-Marr, and I hope you'll join me again next week. Thank you.